0: The limited partner shares in the potential outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment. But as a passive investor with no day-to-day operating requirements, whose liability is limited to the extent of their share of ownership, the limited partner has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. Now they say you're the average of the people you surround yourself with. Are you looking to elevate your network, connect with individuals that bring your average up? The Limited Partner is more than just a podcast. It's a community to learn, to participate, to connect. There's no other community out there like this for Limited Partners. So subscribe to the podcast, but most importantly, join the community at thelimitedpartner.com. Welcome to the podcast with your host, Jake Wiley. Well, welcome partners. This is your host, Jake Wiley. This week, I'm joined by Kim Lisa Taylor of Syndication Attorneys. Kim, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me, Jake. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah, I really look forward to this conversation. You've written a book. There's a lot of background that I know my listener is going to really want to get into, but I guess let's start from the beginning. How did you get into this business?
1: My husband and I were actually learning how to buy multifamily real estate ourselves. So we went to a real estate training program put on by RE Mentor, which is David Lindahl. We joined their coaching program. We started looking for properties ourselves. While we were at their multifamily millions boot camp, they announced that they were going to have private money boot camp. And I thought, well, at that time, I was a fairly new attorney, had been licensed a couple of years, and I was doing some contract work for other attorneys. I thought, well, if we're going to do this, and start raising money from people to be able to buy these apartment complexes, we better learn how to do it right so that I don't get in trouble with my law license. So we went back to their private money boot camp. I met the attorney that was teaching that class and started to work with him for the next couple of years. And then he and I eventually formed a law firm together, uh, worked together for a number of years. And then in 2016, I just moved across country and opened up my own practice in
0: Florida. That's really awesome. You you mentioned Dave Lindahl. I mean, his multi-million book is one of my favorites. I've actually had him on a previous iteration of the show. We had a great conversation. He's an avid reader and it was, it was really great to pick his brain. So it's cool to hear you mentioned his name.
1: Yeah, I've known him for a very long time and uh, he's a wealth of information, that's for sure.
0: So I guess what, what gets you really excited about the syndication aspect of the business? So much so that you started your own firm.
1: I learned through the process. Actually, my husband and I syndicated a property with some friends and we owned it for nine years and then just sold it in 2019. Uh, my husband decided he like syndication he's just kind of a lone lone wolf wants to answer to himself doesn't like uh, answering to investors so it's not for everyone uh, and then i just you know instead of staying on the syndication route by myself uh, just really started focusing on building my syndication law practice. The thing that got me excited about it is that I learned, you know, early on when I was starting the practice of law, I was doing litigation and litigation support and I didn't care for it. Went to court a few times and I just did not have the mentality to, you know, have, you know, constant friction and fighting and conflicts. And I learned that I really liked putting deals together so much more than I like fighting about deals that went wrong. Through that journey, I learned that I am not not only helping clients that want to further their own financial futures, but I'm also helping them help their investors, which are people within their you know, network of family, friends, and acquaintances that also need to have these investment opportunities presented to them so anyway so that that kind of makes me feel good about what i do is that every day i know that i'm helping clients but i'm also helping them help their investors so you know kind of widening the influence uh and uh, you know maybe paying it forward a little bit so that, that's what makes me excited
0: about it. You think about a lot of people probably skimp on doing this right, right? And there's so many ways that you can get in trouble in the syndication business. Like, how are you finding investors? You know, how are you, quote unquote, advertising which you're not allowed to do? How do you bring them in? How do you set it up appropriately? And then how do you resolve things if and when things don't go appropriately? So obviously, the legal formation at the beginning is the foundation of everything. And I am sure... That you have seen at all. But I think, you know, for our listeners, what we'd probably really like to know is one, how do you do it right? And then maybe two, start off with. Like, what have you seen that has not been done right? And, you know, where did that go?
1: Really starts with understanding the securities laws and what they mean. And I think that's important for both the people who are putting these deals together. So we'll call them the syndicators. The SEC calls them issuers, issuers of securities. Important for the people who are investing in these syndicate, you know, either through limited partnerships or through LLCs where they become members. In either of those cases, I think it's very important that everybody understand what they're getting into and what the rules are that they should be following. The main rule that everybody follows is called Regulation D, Rule 506B. Okay, rule 506B. And this rule allows uh, somebody to put together a group of investors. Uh, They can have an unlimited number of accredited investors, and uh, they can have up to 35 non-accredited but sophisticated investors, but they can't find these investors through any means of general advertising or solicitation. And in order to be able to prove that, they have to set about creating a substantive relationship with those investors before they start making investment opportunities available to them. I think that's one of the main things that people get wrong is that they don't understand that they have to build this relationship. And the relationship is uh, very specific. It, It doesn't just mean that you've known somebody for 25 years. It means that you've actually had a financial conversation with them about their financial qualifications to determine whether they're accredited, if they're not accredited, how might, they be sophisticated and uh, you know, to make sure that that uh, relationship and when that information was learned is documented so that if they were ever questioned by a regulator, they could say, no, I did have that conversation with those investors and make sure they were suitable to be in my deal. And here's the date that I had that conversation. And I didn't make them offers to invest with me until some point after that date. So I think that's what most people get wrong is they don't understand the sequence and what's really required to have the right kind of relationship be a little bit uncomfortable for people to ask those questions. If, you know, if say you meet somebody at a conference or through some local networking group, and then you have to say to them, well, before I can invite you in my deals, I do have to ask you some questions about your finances. And, you know, so sometimes the investors are reluctant to give up that information, but also it's necessary for that person to ask those questions and to have that information before they can provide any investment opportunities to those investors. So it really requires both parties to understand why the questions are being asked why they're important, making sure they understand what those terms mean, what is an accredited investor, what's a sophisticated investor, and uh, being able to uh, have some kind of documentation that that conversation actually did occur before the offer was made. That's a
0: great point. And I think what I've seen, and you've probably seen a lot more than I have, is that being really explicit in why you're having the conversation You know, just this is the purpose, right? Like we need to get through this as opposed to trying to just weave it in and figure out, like, did we talk about everything appropriately? Works better for both parties. Is that a fair statement?
1: Yeah, it's really important. And so if investors understand why the questions are being asked, then they're not going to feel like, oh, this person is prying and they don't know me very well and I don't want to share that information with them. Then they understand that it's a legal requirement. If you want to participate in these kinds of deals, you have to be able to share that kind of information with a sponsor or they're not going to be able to invite you into their deals.
0: Okay. And then in terms of documentation, what's best practice? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of people just start out keeping notes on an Excel spreadsheet and that's fine for a while. And then eventually if they get... You know, too many investors that becomes unwieldy, then they'll want to have some kind of a database or an investor management platform or someplace where they can keep track of what information they've learned from that investor, what kind of things they've sent to the investor and what deals and opportunities they've offered, what was the investor's response uh, and those kinds of things. And so there's a variety of investor management platforms out there that are great for that.
0: Okay. Yeah. I, th- I think that's really important, right? Because if somebody comes, the SEC comes and knocks on your door and they're going to ask, Ask you, I guess, the syndicator or the issuer, if you will, for your records, what are you going to show them? And having some sort of system that says, well, one, this is when we had the conversation in the beginning of time where we did the qualifications. And then like here, are the, all the subsequent communications that we've had back and forth is really powerful.
1: And that's what's necessary for that syndicator to have a defense in case somebody claims that they met them through advertising, because you really have to be able to say, well, yeah, maybe I did advertise that deal to you, but not until after I had that information about you that was necessary for us to have the right kind of uh, substantive relationship.
0: Let's think about the investor themselves, typically called a limited partner. Is there like a checklist or is there a a list of items that they should be thinking about as they approach a deal that they should be looking for to make sure that they're covered?
1: Yeah, so there is. And actually, you can get this in two places. The book that's behind me is a book that I wrote called How to Legally Raise Private Money. It's a number one Amazon bestseller. And if anybody's interested, they can go to our website and get a, a free digital copy of that book or they can buy it on Amazon. The first chapters are all about how syndicates are set up, why you have to establish these relationships, what are the legal requirements for someone to be able to offer you securities and how these deals are typically structured, what kind of marketing materials somebody might need if they want to promote an offering or or to build a a syndication company. And then the last chapter is really dedicated to things investors should know about a syndicator before they invest with them. But when I wrote the book, even the, the beginning of the book, in the preface, I, I wrote that it's important for people who are investing in syndicates to read this book and as important as it is for people who are syndicating to, to read the book. Because if you understand what legal steps your sponsor or syndicator is taking and you're able to spot whether or not they're doing it correctly, then you're going to know right off the bat whether you know that's your number one question. Are they doing it legally? Right? If they're not doing it legally because they are advertising and they're going to be including Non-accredited but sophisticated investors, and they've never had a conversation with you about your finances, and you're getting solicitations in your inbox. You know right there, they're not legally soliciting you, and you really don't want to be part of a deal where somebody's already breaking the law because either they're ignorant of the law or they're in denial that it applies to them when it actually does. So they're going to eventually they're going to get caught and get in trouble. Um, you know, or they know and they don't care, right? So in any of those instances, you don't want to be investing with that person because. If they get in trouble, your investment, you know, the first thing they're going to do is suspend distributions while they pay their legal bills. And, uh, you know, guess where all of your distributions went. And eventually, if the deal goes down in flames because uh, they get in trouble or they go to jail or, you know, they're prohibited from doing it anymore, you know, or they're just embroiled in some investigation or, or legal feud with the SEC or a state securities agency, you're the one that's going to suffer for that. So if you can spot right off the bat whether somebody is not doing this deal legally, that's your big red flag for you that, uh, yeah, you might want to steer clear of that person. So the more you understand, the better. So the book talks about all the different things that people should know before they invest in a syndication. Um, You know, just to kind of briefly go over some of those things, you want to know, well, number one, are they doing it legally? Number two, what is their background? What's their education? How many of these have they done before? and who's on their team, you know, so, you know, maybe not every single member of the team has done this before, but there should be at least one or Two people that have done three to five deals before that have had some success. So you want to ask about their track record, past deals, what stage are they at right now? Have they been able to deliver the returns that they promised? And you really need to dig deep into that. Just think of it like you're interviewing somebody for a job. You know, What kind of questions would you ask them if you were interviewing them for a job? And the job being, will I let you manage my fifty dollars or $100,000 that I'm you know, thinking about uh, investing in the deal you're proposing? So you also want to know who else? Like, What other outside team members they have? Who are their securities attorneys? Do they have a hired securities attorney so that somebody's doing their own documents? That's a big red flag. If they don't have uh, securities attorneys helping them, they could be making tax mistakes that will affect you. Structuring mistakes are very, very common. So you want to make sure that you know who's on their team, CPAs, attorneys, property managers, Any other affiliates they may be using to provide services, you know, if they're going to be using their own affiliated property management company, you know, then you want to make sure that there's uh, some you know, way in there for you to get rid of uh, somebody who's not managing the property correctly. And that's another thing you want to look for in their documents. Is there a way to remove the manager of the syndicate or the general partner if they're not performing? And, you know, do the members have the right to vote to remove them? And then if there's an affiliated property manager, can they also remove them at the same time? So those are things to look for. You want to make sure that you understand what they're proposing as far as the distribution schedules. We call them waterfalls. So there will be a section that talks about how funds are going to be distributed whenever the company has either distributable cash or available cash. You want to make sure that you understand those. Some of them can be very complex. And if you don't understand it, then you need to ask questions questions until you do. And if you still don't understand it, then you might want to steer clear. The best and most successful ones are the documents should be written in plain English that you can understand what it is you're getting into and what you should expect and when you should expect to see it. Um, There'll also be some fees, the general partner or the manager will earn along the way. So you wanna make sure that you understand what those fees are, that you believe they're fair and reasonable, you understand where those fall within the hierarchy of that waterfall. A lot of times the sponsor will earn fees before they pay, before they get, the distributions are determined, then that's okay as long as you understand what those fees are and, and you believe they're fair and reasonable. If you think some of the fees are excessive or not reasonable, then that's not a good fit for you, and you shouldn't invest in it. How long do they plan to hold this property? You know, that's going to be important for an investor as they're looking into their investment horizon and saying, "All right, I, you know, want to retire at such and such a date, or I'm going to have, you know, this kid going to college. You know, something that you might want to have that money back for. You want to look at that and understand that when you're investing in a real estate syndicate. They're really investing for the duration of time that that property is owned, which could be indefinite, but usually there's some kind of a target time frame. That the sponsor is looking at, so you at least want to look at that time frame and make sure that that makes sense within what you plan to do with that money later on. And you want to look to see what has to happen before you actually get your money back. Is it going to come back to you in drips and drabs, while the company owns the property, or are you going to? Is there something going to happen like a sale or a refinance when you're going to get it all or you know a big chunk of it back that you can go invest in something else or that you can use for some other purpose? You also want to. Make make sure you understand the property. A lot of these apartment complexes that people are buying are kind of run down. And that's the nature of the game is you're looking for these kind of mismanaged run down properties that the sponsor can go in and fix up. So you want to look at what they're planning to do to the property, look hard at the pictures. If it's in your area, then go visit it. If not, look it up on Google, look it up in mapping program, just try to get a feel for that area and what it's like and whether you're comfortable with investing in that kind of a place. And the sponsor should be providing projections, some kind of operating history, things like that. So, and you can ask them for all the information that they're generating in order to make their buying decision. They should be making that information available to you either on request or, uh, you know, putting it in some kind of a Dropbox uh, folder or something where you can access it, or maybe in that investment management platform. You know, you are gonna be stuck in this deal. You're not gonna, this is not something that's gonna be freely transferable. If you're a passive investor, and something happens in your life, you may not be able to withdraw that money. You probably can't. Once it's invested, it's invested until that property is sold. If you want to get out early, you're probably going to have to take a discount. You know, maybe even what you originally invested in order to get that money back, or you're going to have to find a buyer. There are secondary buyers out there, but they're usually only going to pay you fifty or sixty cents on the dollar. So just you know, be aware that this is you know you don't want to try to transfer or withdraw that money unless you know, it's a really big hardship for you. You want to look and see what happens in the event of a dispute. What if the members have a dispute with the management? How do they handle that? Are there some alternative dispute resolution provisions that are going to help keep the costs low? You know, our documents, for instance, you have mediation first, followed by arbitration, unless the parties agree that uh, maybe litigation is a better option. Some jurisdictions that may be the case. So you want to make sure that you understand that there are some alternative dispute resolution resolution mechanisms that could help you know keep the cost from just escalating because securities litigation can easily run into six figures for both parties and so all of a sudden you you know you're the company you've invested in has a hundred or two hundred thousand dollar tax bill well that's certainly going to affect the returns to investors so you want to look and see what kind of voting rights you're going to have as a member making sure that you like these people you know dig around on the internet do some Google searches do a Facebook search do a LinkedIn search, see what other people are saying about them. And uh, don't just look at the first page of Google, because if somebody does get in trouble, then they're usually going to hire some reputation management company to push their, you know, the bad stuff people said about them back into the back pages. So dig a little deeper, look at the, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth pages of Google to see if there's something, you know, negative about that person that's a concern to you.
0: That was a lot. And... I think it was all really good. And I think what what I want to say to you is this path has been trod before, right? This is not new stuff. So when we talk about the legal documents and the setup of the business, there shouldn't be anything that feels fancy or freewheeling about it, right? And I think to your point about the operating agreement, the setup of the business, like, does it feel complicated or the waterfalls, you know, like? Do they not make any sense? They should. And it should be relatively straightforward what you're getting into. And it's been done a million times before. So if it feels like something's out there on on a limb or just kind of crazy, to your point, maybe you should look at something else. I think that what I want to bring it back to is you shouldn't be scared of getting into it right? Because it's been done before, it's been done well. If you've got a reputable sponsor that's put these types of deals together before and got a great team, and I think you brought up a really good point too, is who's on the team, right? It's good if they have great team members, right? You want an outside attorney, you want an outside CPA, right? Because these are all very like structural legal ramifications that it can patch you, you know? And, and, And for example, in a limited partnership, the allocation, there's depreciation allocations. You need a CPA to explain that to you personally, and how that impacts you. Let somebody just set it up and and hope for the best. You really brought up some great points. And I think the other aspect of it that I, I kind of got out of your conversation is that if you know what you're getting into, you know what kind of deal is it you know is it a multifamily syndication do you understand apartments you don't have to know all the nuances and the ins and outs but if you understand the business this won't be overly complicated that's right and then i guess the other aspect too that that's important is that if you can understand how the general partner the syndicator the issuer all different names for basically the same party are getting compensated then i think you'll understand a lot more about the deal as well is that a fair statement absolutely and i think the other point is that it is fair for the general partner, the syndicator, to be compensated because they are taking on all the diligence, the front end of the deal. They're putting it together. It is their livelihood theoretically. So they should get paid for it. So a lot of people, I think, have fear of like, hey, you know, you're not in this game like a limited partner like myself. Well, it's like, well, you're doing all of the work. This is your job. Put this thing together. You should get paid for it. I don't think seeing fees in a deal should be scary in of themselves. But if you have some sort of baseline of what's reasonable and what's not, then you can understand if they're taking it through the, the ringer on you, right? For example, if they put the deal together right? They get a fee for that, right? When the deal closes. But then if they're also the property manager and the asset manager, like they're kind of stacking a bunch of different things on there. And I mean, what are your thoughts there? I think you were saying those are the areas you need to watch out for.
1: I believe that, you know, you shouldn't invest if you can't see a way that the sponsor is getting paid while you're owning that property. Uh, And the reason is because you have to have an alignment of interests. If the sponsor has a way to make money and and there's some performance parameters they have to meet before they can, you know, achieve some of the profit or something like that, then that's helpful for you. But I've seen deals and I've seen organizations that try to force people into doing these deals where the investors get all their money back plus some specified return before the sponsor ever gets a dime. Well, in my opinion, that uh, really misaligns the interests of the investors with that sponsor. And the reason is because the sponsor doesn't get paid until he sells the property. So what does he want to do? He wants to sell it as quickly as possible. But the investors are happy because they're making all these returns. But in the meantime, If the sponsor isn't making money off your deal, well, he still has to feed his family. himself, you know, so if, or herself, if they're not able to do that, then they're going to have to go get a job or chase another deal or something else that's turning their attention away from managing your investment. So you really want to make sure that they're getting fairly compensated. It's more about the kind of returns that you're going to get than what they're going to get. Um, So if you feel that you can do better or the same as uh, maybe what you're getting in other investments right now, and, you know, maybe here's an opportunity to do slightly better than that, uh, then you have to decide if you want to take on that risk and whether that's appropriate for you. Diversification is a good thing. You know, the stock market can drop in, you know, drop of a hat overnight and you don't have any control over that. Well, the real estate market can also take a hit. But the thing that's consistent about the real estate market and has been for the last hundred years is that it's a constant uphill. It takes dips, but then it comes back and it's higher than it was before and it dips again and it comes back and it's higher than it was before, you've just got to be able to ride it out. So as long as you're not in a position where you're forced to sell at the dip, then uh, and you can ride it out, uh, you know, when the the, the syndicator is not getting pressure from the investors to just dump it or something like that at an inappropriate time, then it, it can work out for everybody, but you have to be patient. So, you know, there can be instances where there's somebody who's just not doing their job, you know, outliving the high life and they're posting stuff all over Facebook or, you know, showing them You know, living a a more affluent lifestyle than, you know, perhaps they should be. You need to think about whether or not that's someone you really want to invest in. Is that a mark of success or is that a mark of something else? Just have to make sure that you understand who you're investing with and and what their motives are. So it is important that you want the sponsor to get paid and you want them to get paid uh, reasonably during the period of time you own the property and that does align their interests with yours because if they're getting a share of the profits at the same time you're getting a share of the profits then uh, everybody can stay in this deal indefinitely. and if there is a market downturn you can still all ride it out and everybody wins in the end but the other thing you have to realize is in a private placement memorandum so the private placement memorandum is the disclosure document that the sec requires if you're going to include any non-accredited investors in a deal 40 to 60-page document, but there's going to be about seven pages in there that are entitled risks. And as painful as it might be to wade through them, you really need to do that. As a passive investor, you've got to read those risks, understand the risks, and make sure that you're willing to take those risks because what that is explaining to you is all the different things that could happen that could affect your investment or your ability to get your money back. You know, I've been doing this now for almost 13 years. And I have just a very, very few Instances where the investors actually lost money, you know, where they they didn't get all of their money back. They got some of it back, but very very few instances where that where that occurs. But when it did occur, it was because some external thing happened that was beyond the control of the syndicator. Severe wind damage at a property that the insurance company valued at two hundred thousand dollars, but actually would have cost two million dollars to fix. Forcing you know multiple buildings in an apartment complex to be offline that couldn't be rented or weren't habitable, and you know the lawsuit went on for two, three years, and during that time, the bank called the loan, and the investors lost their money. There's, you know, weather events that are not insured do happen. Uh, you know, hurricanes, eviction moratoriums. You know, who could have predicted the eviction moratoriums during COVID? And you know that that affected some some landlords. So you know, riots. You know, people who have multifamily properties or commercial properties in zones that have turned into riot zones. How do you handle that? That could result in a loss for you. So make sure you understand the property and what the risks are associated with that property, and really ponder that and make sure that it's an appropriate investment for you and you're willing to take that risk before you do it.
0: I think you you had some great advice there. One, the fact making sure that you're aligned with your sponsor is so key. I think there's a there's an investment thesis out there where it's like I want to squeeze all the blood out of the that I can get before you get paid, you know, like you sweat equity, this thing, but you're right. It creates a misalignment of interest. And therefore your goal of maximizing your investment and your sponsor's goal of, just getting paid could be very different. So that's important. So it's okay for your sponsor to be paid. You should want them to be paid along the way and feel comfortable that it's enough. Not it doesn't have to be egregious, like you said. And I think the other side is there are risks associated with this. And you need to know what the, the strategy is for the property, right? Like to your point, the intent is generally some sort of value add play, maybe not full distress, but can we take a property and increase the value of it by you know bringing the rents up by making some improvements? That is the strategy. But you also need to know where is the property How many external forces could affect that strategy? So I think that's great. And I guess as we kind of come to a close here, what would you do to make this syndication industry better?
1: You know, maybe require everybody to go through a training course and a certification before they would be allowed to offer private offerings. I've never really thought about that before, but uh, something like that could be beneficial because then you'd at least know that they've been through some amount of training on how to manage these kinds of assets and how to manage Investors and uh, what are the ramifications if they do it incorrectly? So you know something like that could probably be a good. I think
0: it's a great idea, right? Because there are, there are some gunslingers out there that just one feel like they've been doing it forever. They just know better than everybody else, and that's just not necessarily true. And then two, there's some folks that are just getting in there that are trying to do it cheap. That's not the best strategy either. But my my final question on the show always is it's about gratitude. And it's about giving back. None of us got here on our own, and I want to make sure that we're giving the people that helped us with give us a leg up along the way a little shout out. In your path has helped you get to where you are today and, and maybe changed your life that you'd like to give a little shout out to you?
1: I would uh, definitely say David Lindahl has had a huge impact on my life. Uh, you know, I learned so much from him about the multifamily business when I was in his training program and I've been around his training program. I actually do teach some courses for him. I do, do co-teach his private money boot camp. He's really helped me understand the business, but also helped so many of my clients understand the business. Uh, I think that uh, he's probably probably been one of the biggest influencers. And he
0: actually wrote a forward to my book as well. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love Dave. I think if you understand his background, he was a landscaper, he was in a band for forever. And he turned into somebody that's, I don't know, probably got half a billion dollars plus of assets and now spreading the love and teaching people how to do it. If he can do it, anybody can do it. And I think his, his message, what I really love about Dave's message is that it's find the right team, surround yourself with amazing people. Don't try and do it all on your own. And I think that his whole success has been about finding the right people and bringing people together, having the right attorneys, the right accountants, the right property managers, the right asset managers. And then his small core team kind of just oversees all of that. I love that message. So I'll I'll double that. Dave has changed my life as well. Well, Kim, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been great. We'll put links in the show notes to your book, um, your website, and Amazon. So everybody can find that. And then um, obviously some of the things that we talked about will link as well, but I really appreciate having you here.
1: Thanks so much, Jake. I really appreciate being here and I hope uh, this has been helpful for your audience.
0: Absolutely. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the limited partner podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. If there's any reason you wouldn't leave us a five-star review, please email me directly at jw at Your feedback is always appreciated. Now, the show is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the limited partner community. It's a community where limited partners can come together, learn about what best in class looks like, opportunities, and most importantly, a place to connect. There is nothing out there like this. So head over to thelimitedpartner.com and sign up. We'll see you next time.